I was watching earlier this week uh, before going to preach on Tuesday night. I was, I was watching some hockey, and uh, since since the the Stars weren't playing, which is my team of preference, I was watching the the Ducks play, and there was a a, a, a play behind the net where I, something happened that I'd, I'd never seen happen before. And I've been watching hockey for 16, 17 years. And the, the player was behind the net. Zegris, I think was the guy's name. And he went to scoop the puck up on his stick. Well, you've seen that before uh, because they'll, they'll go down, they'll pick the puck up. And sometimes they try to wrap around and almost like a lacrosse player just shove the puck in the net. Well, he didn't do that. He picked the puck up on the stick and then he, he tossed it over the top of the goal and his teammate was on the other side and literally batted it down out of the air and into the goal. It was like it was soft toss in baseball. And it was the announcers lost their minds. And I had never seen it before. And these two guys were laughing together hysterically that this actually worked. Well, the other team challenged the, 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 uh, the goal because they were saying his stick was above the crossbar and it was an illegal goal. Well, they reviewed it and it was close, but they counted the goal. Well, when they came back, the two guys were sitting on the bench and they were laughing still hysterically that they had pulled this off. They were like, they, and they interviewed the guy later on this week and he said, I, I, I didn't think we had a shot at that. We had done it a couple times in practice, but it was amazing, right? And sometimes when we watch sports, it, we watch sports for that purpose. We want to be more amazed than we already are. We want to see the greater feat than we've already seen. And so that keeps us coming back and watching again and again and again and again. And that's why we love to watch the superstars, because those are the ones that we look at and we say, okay, what are you going to do now? What's next that you're going to do that, that's going to catch me off guard, that's going to impress me even more than you've already been able to impress me? Well, I have to imagine if we were walking with Jesus at this time in his earthly ministry, that that would kind of be our mindset towards Jesus too. We'd be wondering, all right, what's he going to do next? What's coming now? How's he going to alter our expectations this time around? And so if you will, grab your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 6, where we're going to see him do just that. He's coming off of this interaction with the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders there in Capernaum. And after this, he decides to take his, his disciples and cross the, the Sea of Galilee. Would have been about six, seven miles by boat on this trip that they make. So they get in the boat and they go across the Sea of Galilee. It says in John chapter 6, verse 1, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. In fact, today, if you go to Israel, you're going to end up going to the region of Tiberias, and that's the region of Galilee um, today. And, and so this is uh, an addendum that John provides just to remind his readers as they're reading okay, the Sea of Galilee is the Sea of Tiberias, just a, an explanatory note there. And it says in verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, again, as we think about John's gospel, as we think about what he's doing here, he's already told us back in John chapter 2 about Jesus and some of these crowds and how Jesus didn't entrust himself to these crowds because he knew what was in the heart of men. And so he was reticent to trust them because he knew that they weren't necessarily following him for the right reasons. And yet that doesn't mean as these crowds begin to follow Jesus that he wasn't still willing to engage with them, teach with them. In fact, in John or in Mark's rather parallel account of what's going on, it even tells us that Jesus felt a compassion towards them. We read this in Mark chapter 6 verses 33 through 35. Now many saw signs, sorry, many saw them going and recognized them. 
And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. So, so Jesus shows up and Mark fills in some gaps for us in this account. Jesus shows up. There's a large crowd that's already there that's ran ahead of him because they're excited to be around Jesus. And Jesus feels compassion on them because he says they're like a sheep without a shepherd, which is an indictment on the spiritual leaders of the time. In fact, we even read in our Old Testament reading in Hosea today that Jesus, or that, that God indicted the priests of Israel saying, my people are a people without knowledge because you priests have abdicated your job. You, you're, you're not doing what you should be doing. And so Jesus shows up and he sees the massive crowds there that have gathered and he looks at them and he feels compassion towards them. So he begins to teach them. Well, in teaching them, he teaches them it says, until it says in verse 35, that it becomes a, a late hour of the day. Now, this has been a full day for Jesus. His interaction in Capernaum, where he's been going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders there, telling them, hey, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. I'll state it plainly for you. I am the Son of God. Those who do not honor the Son do not honor the Father. Then he gets in the boat, and they go across to the other side, and he sees this crowd, and he sits down and begins to teach them. And it says, the hour grew late. And then it says in verse 4 of John chapter 6, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is an interesting note from John because where Jesus is right now is not in Jerusalem. Which when you read the marker, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, you would expect that Jesus would be in Jerusalem because that's what the Jewish males did during this time. They would go there to celebrate the, the, peace, the feast of the Passover there on, the, on Mount Zion where they were uh, where the Temple Mount was. However, here, Jesus is not in Jerusalem, but he's up in Galilee. And we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, well, why wasn't Jesus in Jerusalem? Well, John chapter 7, verse 1, actually tells us, because it says this, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to do what? To kill him. So Jesus, knowing that it wasn't yet his hour, chose not to go down to Jerusalem for this particular feast of the Passover. So then why does John mention it? Because contextually it doesn't seem to have anything to do with what he's doing here with teaching these crowds and what he's about to do with, spoiler alert, feeding the crowds. And so why does John throw this little note in in verse 4? Well, the reason I think that he does, and a lot of commentaries, commentators agree with this, is that he's setting up what he's about to get to. And we're not going to get there this morning. We'll get there as we pick back up our study in January. But he's setting up a, a statement that Jesus is about to make. Now, during the feast of the Passover, the Jews were commanded to, to eat unleavened, what? Unleavened bread. Yes. And Jesus is about to make a statement about being the bread of life. So in the, 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 the chronological, the, the, the time context of the Passover feast being at hand, when they're eating the unleavened bread, when they're thinking about the deliverance of God's people out of the land of Egypt, out of Exodus, and they're thinking about even God's provision of manna in the wilderness, and Jesus is going to tell them, I am the bread of life. So I don't want to preach my feet out from under me on that sermon that's coming up here, but at the same time, just so that you're, you're aware, why is he referencing the Passover when Jesus is in Galilee? I think he's doing so to set up what Jesus is going to say uh, soon enough in our passage when he's going to say, hey, I'm the bread of life. But speaking of bread, in, in our passage, it, it turns out that the, the disciples look at Jesus 
in Mark's account at least, and say, hey, look, the hour is late and, and we need food for the, the crowds. Now, in our text, in the parallel account, Jesus says this in verse 5. He says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? There's questions. Well, what are the chronology here? What are we supposed to do with this? How do we measure this up? Did, did the disciples ask Jesus about food or did Jesus ask the disciples about food? I think probably both. And when you get to heaven, you can ask John, hey, John, Mark, why did you guys write it differently? Because it confused us. Um, but I don't think we need to be confused by this. I think these are just, again, two different perspectives of what's going on. Mark's perspective is probably Peter's perspective because we believe that Mark was heavily influenced by Peter's account of the events that were going on. And this is the way that, that John recalled things. But it, it seems that at some point, Jesus looks at Philip and asks Philip, why Philip? Well, Philip was from this region. Philip was from the region of Bethsaida. So by nature of that fact, he drew the short straw when Jesus asked him, hey, we've got probably seven to 10,000 people here, Philip. Where can we get some food? Does, is Chick-fil-A open? Is it a Sunday? Can we cater some food in for them? Because a lesson that Jesus already knew that we here at our church have learned well is that if you guys have full bellies, you tend to listen a little bit better. So Jesus also wants them to have, uh, have food because he cares for them and loves them. So he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread for all of these people? But notice the text says that he asks him that to what? Test him. Because it says in verse 6, he knew what he would do. Well, Philip, as all of us would in this moment, I believe, uh, fails the test. Because Philip's response is, 200 denarii would not suffice to buy all of these people food. 200 denarii would have been roughly eight months of salary. So eight months of salary is not going to be enough to feed all of these people. And then Andrew, who I, I think I would have liked to have known, chips in and goes, hey, well, we've got five loaves and two fish, Jesus, if you think that's going to help. And then he's quick to say, but what are they for so many people? Again, the text will say that there are 5,000 men who are fed. So if we factor in the presence of women and children, again, I think we're easily in the, the realm of seven to 10,000 people that are gathered here. And Andrew says, we've got a young boy who has five loaves and two fish. The expectations of the disciples are, look, Jesus, just let them go their way. Just let them go so that they can go and be fed. But that's not what Jesus' expectations were. That's not what Jesus' plan was. The question, what are these for so many? Looking at the natural limitations, looking at the things that, that for the disciples, they said this is impossible in understanding that they failed to expect great things from Jesus. They had seen some great things from Jesus, right? They had seen him turn water to wine. They had seen him heal the lame and the sick. They've witnessed some pretty phenomenal things at this point from Jesus, and yet still their expectations of what Jesus could or would do weren't quite high enough. But thankfully, Jesus is in the business of shattering expectations, and that's our first point this morning. Trust in our Savior. Trust Jesus who shatters expectations. Okay, Jesus, we've seen you do some amazing things, but Really, we, all we've got is five loaves of bread and two fish. Just let them go home. It's just over a year old because I'm a, an Apple nerd. I know this, that uh, just over a year ago, Apple released the M1 chip, the M1 processor. And they were building this thing up saying this is going to be a total game changer. And it's 
you're not going to need as much memory in your machines and it's everything. And, and so I went out and I got a, a Mac mini about eight or nine months ago with the M1 in it and just got the base model of it or whatever, eight gigs of memory. And, uh, and I, I was using that in my office as my primary computer for the last seven or eight months. And some of the guys would come by and be like, you've only got eight, eight gigs of memory on that. There's no way it's going to be able to support Lagos and your email and your calendar and all of these things. And I'm here to tell you, man, the M1 chip exceeds expectations. It, uh, it has not once given me the spinning beach ball of death. If you're an Apple user, you know what that thing is when it pops up and it's, mm, right? Not one time. In fact, it doesn't even, the fan doesn't kick on in the thing. I mean, this is whatever Apple did, and I don't know why they didn't do it 10 years ago, but whatever Apple's done on this M1 chip, it, it's, it's legitimate. It's for real. And now they've got the M1 Pro and the M1 Max, which I don't even know what to think about those, right? But that exceeded my expectations. Or maybe you're a movie buff and you have a movie out there that you think about and you went in to watch this movie and your expectations were relatively high for it, but then that movie just shattered those expectations and exceeded them all the more, right? Think about the first time you watched Braveheart or The Rock, or Gladiator, and you walk out and you just feel like, praise God, I'm a man, right? You just are, are, it exceeds your expectations. Or maybe those of you who are married, at least I hope for those of you who are married, that your marriage has exceeded your expectations. That your wife is a gift from the Lord to you, and you are thankful for her, and marriage is so far beyond anything you could have ever fathomed it would be. Or maybe for you as a parent or a grandparent, that that role exceeds your expectations of what that's like to be a dad, to be a grandfather, to be a great-grandfather. What an amazing thing that is. And you've got these expectations and you think, okay, this is going to be great, but then the reality far exceeds those things. Meant Jesus doesn't just exceed our expectations, he shatters our expectations. There's no way any of these men that were with Jesus thought that he was going to be able to take five loaves and two fish and feed so many people. And yet that's exactly what he does here. And so much so that the text goes on to say that they pick up an abundance of leftovers, 12 baskets full of leftovers. That he's got more than enough to suffice for all of the the, the appetites of the crowd that's gathered there. And the greatest example of Jesus exceeding our expectations is the cross. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 27, speaking of those that go on sinning, he says, you know what? They, their expectation should be that they should fear the judgment and wrath of God upon their souls. Man, that, that's really all of our expectations. If we look at, at, at the equation that we have a holy and just God who is infinitely holy and infinitely just. And his standard is that we are absolutely perfect. If we look at that God and then we look at ourselves and understand that even one sin in our lives is an infinitely grave offense against an infinitely holy God. And that one sin has separated us and demands a a payment that none of us can pay. The odds that were stacked against us were far greater than five loaves and two fish and 7,000 people. Because nothing that we could do could ever close the gap between the Father and us. Between an infinitely holy God and an infinitely sinful humanity. 
the, the expectations that we should have rightly had were expectations of judgment and wrath and eternal damnation. And yet by God's grace, because he saw us as sheep without a shepherd, he gave us Jesus who shattered those expectations. I, I mean, even if we want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, maybe our expectations become similar to those that follow other religions. Take Islam. Well, yes, you are a sinful people and God is a holy God. And so here's the answer. You need to do enough good works in order that hopefully when you die and you are weighed out, your good works outweigh your bad. Jesus shatters those expectations as well. Asking Philip, Philip, where can we find food for so many people? Is it like asking a, a sinner, hey, how many good deeds do you need to do in order to be justified in the sight of God? The answer to both questions is the same. It's impossible. It's impossible. And yet the solution to both questions is the same. In our text, it was Jesus. And the answer to the question, the conundrum, how can you be justified before holy God? The answer to that is also Jesus. This is less about the crowd and more about the disciples here. Jesus reminding them, showing them again, like I said at the beginning, sometimes we watch sports because we want to be amazed even more than we already have been. And Jesus is revealing more about himself to the disciples saying, you can trust me. I can do what seems impossible. I think it's helpful for us to pause and consider that Jesus is still shattering our expectations today. Yes, he's satisfied the Father's wrath against us by taking our place on the cross. And he's given us his righteousness so that we can stand before the Holy Father, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And yet consider what Jesus is doing for you right now. Hebrews 7 says that he's interceding for us right now. He's praying for us right now. Hebrews 4 says that he is the conduit that we have to the Father so that we can pray. Since we have a great high priest, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Man, what has Jesus done? What is Jesus doing? What might Jesus do in your life to remind you of his identity while bolstering your faith in him the way that he's doing that with the disciples here? You're feeding the 5,000. Well, after this, in verse 13, it says, So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that they had done, he said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, referencing back to the, the, the prophet to be like Moses. And then verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, we'll come back to that in just a moment, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Meanwhile, as he's withdrawn to the mountain by himself, though, the disciples decide to, to go back to Jerusalem. Or not back to Jerusalem, sorry, back to Capernaum. They want to go home. It's grown late in the day. They've been with Jesus for a long day. They're getting tired. They're ready to go. In fact, Mark's account of this in Mark chapter 6 says that Jesus even tells them to go on ahead of him to go back to Capernaum. So they get in their boat, the one boat that they had taken, which is going to play a factor here in, in, in a little bit. 
they get in the one boat that they had taken and they set out to go back to Capernaum. Again, six to seven mile journey. And they're rowing for quite some time and they're encountering this rough sea, verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Again, even we learn more in Mark's account of this where it says that the wind was against them in this. And they rowed three to four miles, it says in verse 19, when they see something happen here that you wouldn't necessarily expect to happen. See, if we go back to the the feeding of the 5,000, they can look at that and say, God the Father did a miracle through our rabbi. He multiplied the bread, failing to fully wrap their minds around the fact that this is Jesus doing the miracle himself in his own power because of who he inherently is. They can sort of explain that. They can't explain what they're about to see. And I think it's why it leads to their reaction. They're on a stormy sea on the Sea of Galilee and they look out and and what they see outside the boat is they see Jesus walking on the water. Of course, they don't know initially that it's Jesus. And so their response is that they become afraid. The disciples had expectations about Jesus. We've seen that he's shattering those expectations. They also had a certain understanding about who Jesus was that was still being formed in their minds. And Jesus was beginning to exceed not just their expectations, but also their understanding. Because here he comes on the water and they were not yet fully comprehending the fact that, okay, our rabbi is able to transcend the natural laws that are at work here in this world. And so they become fearful of what's going on. Jesus, again, is defying and and pushing and expanding the limits of his disciples and their knowledge and understanding of him. And so they see him coming on the sea, on the water, and they are afraid. Well, we know the the rest of the story, to, to quote Paul Harvey, right? We don't have Peter getting out of the boat in John's account here, and that's interesting. I wonder why. Maybe it was the, the competition between the two of them. Remember, they raced to the empty tomb to see, and maybe, maybe John's like, I'm not going to get Peter his due on here. Somebody else can tell that story. <laughs> but John tells us that Jesus calls out and says, it's me. It is I. And the disciples, uh, their mentality is changed, and it says they're glad to receive him into the boat. And it doesn't say so in the text, but there's another instance where Jesus is with the disciples on a stormy sea. And he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and and the sea is calm. You remember the response of the disciples after that, what it says that they did? They worship Jesus. It doesn't say that they're worshiping Christ here, but I think the response that we see where they go from fear to joy with Jesus now with them in the boat is one that we can point to and say, okay, they were worshiping their savior in response to what they're seeing here. That's our second point this morning. It's worship Jesus who defies understanding. Worship Jesus who defies understanding. There's these social media videos out there of these guys who are in way better shape than, than me. Um, and they, they jump over a bucket of water that's like up on a table. And as they're jumping over the water, they've got enough core and body control that they can tap their feet on top of the water, the surface of the water, and then still clear the bucket. I would be on my face if I tried to do anything like that with water spilled everywhere. 
And the whole idea is, look at us, we're walking on, they're not walking on water, they're tapping the surface of water, right? Any of us who grew up with a pool in, in any close proximity, if you've ever been to a pool, you've tried the whole, I'm going to run off the edge and see how far I can get out onto the water. And it feels like you're making seven, eight, nine steps, but all of your buddies that are with you know that you took two steps and immediately were under the water, right? Why? Because of the natural law of gravity, right? And the surface tension of the water cannot support your weight. You're going to be pulled down to the, the bottom of the pool there. So to see Jesus walking on the water, again, for us, we read this and it's, it's, it's kind of like, okay, ho-hum, whatever, because we grew up with the felt boards and we saw Jesus walking on the water. We know this story, but put yourselves in the shoes of the sandals of the disciples. They're watching, they, they just watched Jesus feed 5,000, 7,000, 10,000 people. That's impressive. Now they're in a boat and now here comes him, Jesus walking on the water. So much so that Peter's like, well, I, I want to do that. Hey, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. So Jesus says, okay, come on. Peter gets out of the boat, takes a couple steps, and is like, ah, I changed my mind. Begins to sink, right? Because he takes his eyes off Jesus. This is not a, a normal thing that they're seeing happening. This is a miracle that's transcending their understanding. In fact, it, it's, there's two miracles here. Do we notice that when we read it? Because it says this, it's, I do not be afraid, verse 20, verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and notice the second miracle. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. They were in the middle of the, the lake. They were another three to four miles away if they were on course in the midst of this storm. Jesus gets in the boat and they're immediately at their destination. Again, this is something that is transcending our ability to understand. Man, not only does Jesus defy our expectations, but if we're honest, the cross also defies our understanding, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, Paul makes that point. He says, for the word of the cross is what? Foolishness. The word of the cross, the world does not understand. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. See, men, God has been long in the business of defying our understanding, and the cross is probably the pinnacle of that for the same reasons that I already talked about in point number one. It does not make logical sense that God would do what he did at the cross. It does not make sense to our minds to think that, according to Romans 5, while we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God, that God would show his love for us to send his son to die for us. That defies understanding. Are we as amazed men at the cross as these men must have been watching Jesus walk across the stormy sea? Are we as moved to awe as these men must have been as, as they realized that once Jesus was in the boat, boom, they were right there at their destination? 
if we're not moved to be as amazed over those two things as we would be or as we are at the cross, then we don't fully appreciate the cross as we should. It makes far less sense for the God of the universe to sacrifice his son on a bloody cross for our sins than it does to see a man walking on water. And it's far more amazing to consider the fact that God closed the gap between himself and sinful humanity than to imagine Jesus closing a three-mile gap between the disciples on the boat and the shore. The reconciliation of us to God is far more impressive than the reconciliation of the disciples to Capernaum. And it defies understanding to an even greater level. For what purpose? Well, for the purpose, I believe, of causing us to worship Jesus. Right? I mean, that's, that's what it is in sports. You see an athlete do something that you never thought possible, and you're in awe of that person. And then they do something even greater, and you're in even greater awe of that person. There's a reason why when, when you watch golf these days that everybody is still asking the same question. Who is the next Tiger Woods? Or in basketball, who's the next Michael Jordan, unless you're a LeBron James fan? And if you are, you're wrong. <laughs> the reason is, is because we, they set, the, they, they set the, the bar. And we're like, we're not going to be impressed until you pass that. Man, Jesus is defying understanding, surpassing expectations. Are we impressed yet? Are, are we moved to awe and worship of our Savior when we consider everything that he's done for us? Would we be more in awe and more amazed if we had been here on the boat with the disciples? Again, if the answer is yes, then I don't think we fully grasp the, the significance of the cross and what he's done for us. Because this is child's play considering what he did for us at the cross. And I don't mean to downplay this. I can't walk on water. I can't teleport. This is significant. I'm just trying to help us to understand that the cross is more significant. Well, the crowds, remember these crowds who wanted to make Jesus king, they're puzzled because... They go looking for Jesus the next day, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had remained on the other side, why did they stay there? Because they saw the disciples get in the boat after Jesus went up on the mountain and leave. And so they're going, okay, well, we've got Jesus up on the mountain. The disciples left, so Jesus is still here. So let's hang out here because maybe we'll have some time with Jesus when he comes back down. Well, the night passes, and the next day, the crowd begins to look for Jesus. Where did he go? There was only one boat here. The disciples took the boat. Jesus, you guys saw Jesus go up on the mountain, didn't you? Did anybody see Jesus come down from the mountain? Hey, why don't we send some people up the mountain to see if Jesus is still up there? Well, they can't find him. Other boats, verse 23, from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten, and the eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Why Capernaum? Well, they knew that's where he had come from, and they also knew that was his home base. 
So they said, okay, we don't know where Jesus is, but chances are he's eventually going to get back to Capernaum. So let's just go there. We have to, to, to remember sometimes because we think of the betrayal of Jesus. We think of the, the arrest of Jesus. We think of the Passion Week. We think of the crowds chanting, crucify him. But we have to remember that during his earthly ministry, Jesus was famous. I mean, the, these people are so desperate to find Jesus that they're going, okay, what, where, where is he going to be? He's not here. Let's go wait for him back in Capernaum because they're, they're, they just want to be around Jesus. There's something about him that's drawing them to him. So they go to Capernaum and it says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And I think we would have been asking the, the same question. Wait a minute. How did you get here? There was only one boat. You went up the mountain. The disciples took your boat. We were waiting for you. How did you do this? How did you get here? I think it's an honest question that they ask. And yet Jesus confronts their question, not for a lack of faith in him, but for seeking the wrong things. Because again, Jesus knows the heart of man, John chapter 2, right? So Jesus asks them this question, or indicts them rather in verse 26. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember back in John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus said, The Father, I have a greater testimony than John because the works that I do are the works that the Father has given me to do and they testify about me. Jesus here is telling them in verse 26, he's saying, you're not here because you've seen the signs and concluded that I'm from the Father. You're here because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, the crowd was impressed, but it wasn't so much the, the right level of being impressed Rather, they looked at Jesus and they said, here's a guy that's always going to give us food in our bellies. So let's make him king. You think, man, how shallow can a group of constituents be that they're going to fall for a promise like, hey, I'll always make sure you have food on your table. It's almost like Jesus had promised them $1,400 if they elected him king. Or you're never going to have to pay for college again if you elect me king. See, as we shake our heads at the political landscape around us, men, it's nothing new. That's what these crowds were after with Jesus. They're looking at him going, yeah, you are awesome. Five loaves, two fish. Uh, we've got some in and out over here. We got a cheeseburger. That would be pretty cool. And oh, by the way, here's some denarii. Can you do the whole multiplication thing with that too? And you know, the Romans, if you could unmultiply the Romans, that would be awesome. So we're ready for you to be our king. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You remember back in John chapter five, verse 41, Jesus had already told the people that he wasn't gonna be that type of Messiah. He said, I do not receive glory from people. And he goes on in that passage there in John chapter five to say, look, you, you receive glory from one another. You, he's saying you're ready for a Messiah that you're gonna be willing to flatter as long as he flatters you and takes care of your needs. So Jesus has already told them if they were listening, I'm not that type of Messiah. And in, in verse 15 of John chapter six, after he multiplies the bread and the fish, that's why he retreats up to the mountain because he's, he's not interested in being their mascot. 
He's not interested in being their welfare president. He's there to be the Messiah that God the Father wants him to be, and that's not who they are looking for. And that's why he indicts them and says, you're seeking me, not for the right reasons, but because your bellies are full. Jesus was calling them out because their their fervor was misplaced. This time it's not the expectations or the understanding that Jesus is addressing and confronting, but rather it's the desires that he's after. Because Jesus doesn't just shatter our expectations and defy our understanding. But man, when we look at Jesus, we have a savior who reorients our desires as well. And that's our third point this morning. It's this, worship Jesus who defies understanding, but submit three to Jesus who reorients our desires. Submit to Jesus, to our savior who reorients our desires. Because we can come to Jesus initially like these crowds came to Jesus for the wrong reasons, wanting and desiring the wrong things. People who come to Jesus and say, well, maybe if I try a little bit of Jesus, my life will get better. In fact, there's a whole sect of false teaching out there called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement that's built upon this premise that says Jesus exists for me, for my health, for my wealth, for my prosperity, for the things that I want, for my desires, to fulfill what I perceive that I need, that I desire, because after all, God wants me to live my best life now. I got to see this play out a couple weeks ago, we were having our, our bridge, our college ministry, our, our Thanksgiving feast here. That, that was our, our fellowship time, just celebrating together as a ministry. And we were here and there was a, a, one of our students came up to me and said, hey, Pastor PJ, there's a, a couple outside and they're wondering if they can talk to you. I, I said, sure, why not? So went out there and, and met this, this couple and they had driven all the way down from Burbank because they wanted to go over to Benny Hinn's place where he used to be. Um, and they wanted somebody from Benny Hinn's ministry to, to pray for uh, this guy's sister who was in the car with him. He said, we, we went down, we went over there. He said, the place is deserted. And I said, I was thinking to myself, at least, yeah, we're kind of happy about that. We're, we're not too upset that, that that place is deserted. But it just so happened by God's providence, and I believe entirely that that's what it was, that there was a, a security guard that was over in the, that area of the, the loop over there. And so they rolled down their window and they asked him, they said, hey, we were here to, to, to visit Benny Hinn's ministry. And this guy said, well, they haven't been here for like nine months. And he said, but there's a church actually right here that maybe you can go find somebody if you guys need some help. So they drove here Sunday night, seven o'clock. The bridge is the only thing going on at, at that point time on, on campus and they come and pull up right side of, outside of 120 East and they run into one of our students who was outside at the time and they asked to talk to a pastor. So I went out and talked to him and he said, hey, we're looking for somebody to pray for my sister. Would you be willing to pray for her? She's got kidney disease and they're saying it's terminal and we're, we're just really trusting that God is going to do a miracle and heal her of this. I said, I'd, I'd be happy to pray for her. And he said, well, do you have anybody else inside that would be willing to come out and, and pray with you? I said, sure. So I went inside and got some of our students and our leaders and we went out and we surrounded the car where they were and, and uh, we prayed. 
But this couple came here seeking a prayer that was going to say, we claim in Jesus' name that this kidney disease be gone because we believe that we have enough faith to have this removed from her body and we believe that Jesus doesn't want this in her body, so in Jesus' name, be gone and let it go. And we're naming this and claiming this in Jesus' name. What they got was they got prayers that were led by our college students here in our ministry that were saying, God, we pray asking that you would remove this kidney disease because you're able to do that. But we also pray that your will would be done and we pray that even if this disease is not removed, that you would glorify yourself in her life. And they also got some food out of it too. (laughs) But all that to say, man, they came with the wrong desires. Understandable desires, but earthbound desires. In Encountering Jesus is an encounter with a Savior who transcends uh, the desires that we have here on this earth. In fact, the desires that we have are really desires that are, are not, they don't measure up to what we should be desiring. The type of leader that they wanted Jesus to be is, is a, a far too insignificant of a leader compared to the leader that Jesus ended up being. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. To want Jesus because he puts food in your belly, man, is to want Jesus for the wrong reasons. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. That food, as he will identify just in a, in a few verses down the road, is himself. I am the bread of life. The food that perishes, money, sex, status, success, friendship, comfort, health, family. Those things can all be good things in and of themselves, but if we make them ultimate things, they're wrong things. They're idols. And if Jesus is our lucky rabbit's foot to get more of any of those things, then we are abusing our Savior. And we're not desiring the right things from him. Our desires are too weak, as Lewis says, not too strong, because we want the wrong things. We must desire Christ above and beyond everything else. It's that that question that Pastor Mike so often asks us, what's going to matter 100 years from now? Those are the things that we need to be desiring. Those are the things that we need to be pursuing. Those are the things that we need to be orienting our lives around and desiring more of that in our lives. We need to be desiring the things that are going to result in us hearing from Jesus one day, well done, good and faithful servants. We need to be desiring those things that are storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't don't destroy, nor can thieves break in and steal. Those are the things that we need to desire. We need to desire the, the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of the Father, as David talks about in Psalm 16. Those are the things that we need to want most. Jesus reorients our desires. These crowds wanted Jesus, but they wanted Jesus for the wrong reasons. And we need to make sure that we don't want Jesus for the wrong reasons. It's not about security and safety 
and health and wealth here. It's about being with him forever and eternity. It's about that gap between us and the Father being closed by the Son through his death on the cross for us. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Jesus is enough already because of what he's done for us at the cross and the empty tomb. He reorients our desires. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Man, Jesus is so desirable because he's better than everything else in this world. It takes work to believe that. It does. And there are so many times where we need to remember that he is better. And even those times where we need to look at our lives and say, okay, my, my desires are out of whack right now and I need to repent and, and reorient my desires for the right things. And that's why it's so encouraging for us, men, that, that God is a God who is, as he's identified himself, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who is gracious and merciful to us, Right? And so as we consider Christ maybe a little bit more over the next couple weeks than we have this year, let's look this Christmas season at Jesus in a different way. The Jesus who shattered our expectations, defied our understandings, and reoriented our desires. And maybe this is that opportunity for you men, if you've been dry recently, to say, okay, I'm going to repent from the, the, the lack of time in the word, the lack of time in prayer. I'm going to come back and ask that God would forgive me, and I know that he will because he's a gracious God who forgives us, not when we clean ourselves up, but forgives us because of the cross. And that maybe this could be a season where you come back to Jesus and lean in more to your relationship with him And find that he's going to continue for the rest of your life to exceed your expectations, defy your understanding, and through the process of sanctification, reorient your desires towards him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for that reality. God, we're thankful that once you save us, you then go to work on us. God, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not who I was when you saved me and that I won't be the same person if you wait and, and don't call me home before then or return. I won't be the same person I am now 10, 15, 20 years from now. I, I trust that I'll look more like Jesus and I want to look more like Jesus. I need to look more like Jesus. God, I pray that we wouldn't grow complacent in reading your word, complacent in hearing the story that we're hearing so often right now of the, the birth of Christ. God, I pray that we would never be bored with the incarnation. God, I pray that we would listen and that we would be in awe. God, I pray that this 
this Christmas season that you would shatter our expectations, not by what's given to us, but by what has already been given to us. God, even though you will always defy our understanding, I pray that you'd give us a little bit more of an understanding this Christmas of the greatness of Jesus, our Savior, and the greatness of the cross and the greatness of the empty tomb and all that that means for us. And God, I do ask that by your goodness and your kindness and your grace through your spirit who dwells within us, that you would continually reorient our desires so that we would desire less of this world and more of Christ, less of what is for us and more of what is for you. We know that you're able to do that. We trust that you're able to do that. And we pray this knowing that you hear us because of the work of Christ for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.